I love the purpose of changing lives from scratch. For me, as a you know a youth mentor, that's what it's all about. You know, it's taking away the ceilings of everyone else around a kid that automatically we feel we're defined by, but really aren't. And saying your parents' ceilings, your siblings' ceilings, my ceilings, they're not yours. You have got the ultimate control over where you go with your life and what you can do with it. And I love that about Little Kitchen Academy. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. The world of health and wellness has become very complicated and very convoluted over the course of my lifetime. From different fitness regimens to pharmaceutical supplements to the numerous diet plans that exist, it's hard for most people to know what being healthy actually means these days, let alone find a realistic way to get there. Without a strong foundation of basic knowledge about nutrition and fitness, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the massive volume of messaging we're exposed to every day. It's why food literacy is such an integral component of Little Kitchen Academy, and one of the reasons Dr. Oliver Finley became instantly interested in what LKA is doing. Dr. Finley, or Ollie as he's often called, has worked with elite athletes all over the planet in various roles. As a physiotherapist, a performance director, a coach, and he's the founder of Beautiful Game Group, which invests in professional sports teams around the world. But Ollie's even more passionate about helping the rest of the population improve its health through simple, realistic means. And he recently agreed to meet me in the kitchen to talk about all of that and a whole lot more. Beautiful Game Group that you founded and manage. That company invests in sports teams and networks. You have a focus on football, or as many in North America call it, soccer. So I just want to clarify, you are not Ryan Reynolds, correct? I'm definitely not Ryan Reynolds. He's got a face for movies, I've got a face for radio, hence we're doing the podcast. (laughs) So we know how Ryan Reynolds went about investing in soccer or football teams, Wrexham to be specific, But unless a Brinks truck backed up to your house or a big vault just appeared when you were born, I'm wondering how one goes from a background in sport that many of us have to being involved in founding a company that actually invests in sports teams. It's a really good question, actually. And if you'd have asked me this even six or seven years ago, it probably wasn't even on my radar. What was on my radar was... I would say the frustration of working in a number of high-performance environments where people making the decisions that affected what I do and what I did and what some of my colleagues did, whilst they were very well-meaning, they didn't necessarily have the insight in what we do and the impact of the decisions they make. And I mean, if I go back to one of your earlier podcasts, I think it was Maya and her mother Lucia talked about, you know, there are a lot of smart people making decisions out there but they don't have the lived experience. And that was something that was front and center in my world, really. And when I had the opportunity, when I left the NHL, I had the opportunity to come over to UBC and do a PhD. And 
I'm not an academic, as ironic as that sounds. I'm an extremely curious person with an insatiable appetite for learning. And I had the good fortune to come over here and have complete freedom and autonomy in what I studied and what I asked, the questions I asked for my PhD. And I ended up delving down the rabbit hole of sport business. And I interviewed probably 70 or so team owners, CEOs, presidents, general managers. And I got more and more fascinated about how an industry that you know, we've worked in it for a long time. So maybe we see past some of the gloss. But from the outside looking in, you think, well, this industry is a multi-million dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry, let's be honest. And it's got to be run really well. And actually, when you start to scratch between the surface, there are a lot of people that are making it up as they go along with well-intentioned and extremely well-experienced. And some of them do it exceptionally well. But there is a real lack of structure in the industry. And so as I started to do this, a couple of things played out where I was asked by a couple of ultra high net worths to help them identify soccer teams in Europe that were preferably off market, that were undervalued, and help them put together a strategy for increasing enterprise valuation. And I loved it. It was fun, right? It was exciting. And it just satiated my appetite for finding out information being creative, coming up with different strategies, coming up with, you know, a new way of valuing some of these assets that were out there. And I thought I'd love to do this. It solves a lot of my problems of working in the industry. But I looked down the sofa and I didn't find $10 billion or $10 million. I found 10 cents. And so I had to sort of find a way to do it. So I learned how to structure private equity funds um, surrounded myself with incredible people. And that was the road we set out on at the beginning. And six months in, the feedback we were getting was fascinating. It was welcome. But unless you're one of the big private equity firms out there, actually, I don't think private equity is the best way to structure the financing of sports teams. And so we went back to a syndication model. And so I'm working on a project at the moment bringing in investment from a wide variety of sources. But in the meantime, I help other individuals buy and sell their stakes in big sports teams, which is giving me a great education along the way. So that's a long-winded answer. And a very good one and very multifaceted. I could go a number of different directions based on what you just said. One of the things you said is that I'm not an academic, despite the fact you have a very diverse and well-rounded education. You've studied exercise physiology and you're a physiotherapist by trade at one point. You completed an MBA. You've got your PhD, as you just talked about from UBC, and that's in the philosophical side of sport management. So you're very accomplished educationally, but then there's the athletic side. You were a high-end athlete. You represented your country. You were an excellent lacrosse player. You coached as well. I'm wondering in all of that journey, what was the straw that broke, in this case, your back to say, okay, I can't affect change the way I want to as a physiotherapist or as a coach, I need to take it beyond this? That's a really interesting question. Was it one straw or was it repeated? I've had the privilege of working for some exceptional team owners. And you know, my last owners were wonderful people. They got themselves into a situation where it's a steep learning curve. I go back to, you know, Lucia put it very well in your previous podcast, is the difference between a lived experience and being either book smart 
or being technically adept in another area. And I think in sport, there are a lot of team owners, a lot of presidents that come from out with the industry. And there are a lot of idiosyncrasies that are pertinent to, you, you have to be aware of them. And I think from coming within so many different roles within sport as an athlete, I would say hardworking rather than excellent lacrosse player. <laughs> coming at it from a coaching perspective, coming at it from a physio perspective, coming at it from a, a performance director perspective. It gave me an insight into how what I could do could interact with what other roles did, whether it's the marketing department, whether it was the human resource department, whether it was the business development department. And I think I was probably a little bit different. Most performance directors kind of stay in their player lane. But look, Google cares about how its employees are looked after because they know that improves creativity, productivity. And so it's no different in the front office of a sports team. Coaches make decisions under pressure. And yet, a lot of performance departments don't even look at that. And so I think the straws that were breaking the camel's back were that I just saw silos, that I saw cultures that had accidentally evolved rather than intentionally built. And I loved the podcast you did with David Cairn from Birkenstock because he talked about the importance of that culture. And it was a very intentional culture. And that's critical. You know, that is absolutely critical. And I was working in organizations where that just wasn't the case. And so for me to take control of a situation or to help other people take control and advise them, I've been around the block a bit and I've seen a lot of the failings and why not really? I've been accused before. I remember, you know, one of my former staff members, we were in a pretty difficult time and it was a pretty difficult meeting. She said, you're out of your depth. And my initial thought was, ow, that hurts. And then I was like, well, hell yes, because if I'm not out of my depth, I'm not pushing myself, I'm not going to grow. And at some point, you know, you have to be doing things that you've never done before. And so in a way, that for me was just reinforcement that I'm in the right place. I'm right on the boundary of what I can manage. And damn, I learned a lot in that role. It was painful. It was tough. I failed. But goodness, in terms of growth, that was by far and away the biggest period in my life. This is not to give you an opportunity to name drop. This is me asking the question out of interest and curiosity. What are the best organizations and who are the most exceptional athletes that you have found yourself in contact with over the course of your career? I would say if I look at organizations now, and some of them I haven't worked for, but I've interviewed members of staff, I've spent time there. Let's go with a Vancouver connection couple first. I think Brighton and Hove Albion, where the CEO is Paul Barber, who was actually at the Whitecaps for a couple of years. I interviewed Paul. Funny story, Paul was at Tottenham Hotspur. I was at Tottenham. Paul was at the FA, the Football Association. I was at the FA. And so we kind of walked the journey around the same time, didn't really come across each other in our different roles. But as a human being, so impressive. The culture they've built there, so impressive. Just speaking to people, you can tell it's a special place. And if you look at what they're doing in the English Premier League, it surprised a lot of people. It hasn't surprised me. They just have built an incredible organization and they look after their people very, very well. I would say the Toronto Blue Jays are an interesting one. About seven or eight years ago, one of my good friends, Dr. Angus Mugford, who's now the performance director at the New Jersey Devils, went there. 
as performance director. It was the same time I was in the NHL in that role. And he went just after the new general manager, new CEO had come in, new president had come in from Cleveland. And I'm not going to say it was a broken organization, but it was tottering along like a lot of sports organizations do. And the three of them worked so hard to create a process. And I think a lot of these sports teams get so embroiled and caught up in the what's Saturday, what's Sunday bringing, the next game's the most important game. It's not. If you allow yourself to be swayed and unduly influenced by the result of the next game, you're going to be extremely reactive. And you see that time and time again. What that group did, they said, this is a 10-year process. This is a process that is not going to be a smooth upward trajectory. We're going to make mistakes. There are going to be bumps in the road. But they set out from the start with a clear vision, clear mission of how they were going to get there. They defined with key ambassadors in that organization what the values are, what it meant to be a Toronto Blue Jay, and what the acceptable behaviors were. And, you know, I had the privilege to spend three or four days down there with them. And I had access to anyone I wanted to speak to. I have never been in a sports organization, any organization where every person without exception that I spoke to could tell me what the values of the club were word for word, what the vision of the club, where the club was going and have the psychological security to enable them to tell me what they felt, where they'd failed last year and what they're working on this year with the support of their sort of managers. That's incredible particularly in sport, you know how insecure that environment is. They're in probably one of the most difficult divisions to navigate against two financial powerhouses. And so you've got to do something different. And yet what they are putting in place, the foundations, I think they've done very well. They've been patient. You know, a lot of owners, and I've been there, you go into an organization, they want change yesterday. The patience is, we've got to be better in a year. It's a five-year process. It's a four-year process. And, you know, the argument is, yeah, but it's important. You don't win baseball. You don't win football. You can win a season. You can win a league. You can win a championship. But you know what? If you don't put the right foundations in place, repeating that is very, very difficult. And, you know, next year someone else wins. The year after someone else wins. So you're better being patient, putting the right foundations in place, putting the right culture in place and having sustained success rather than one-off success, which, if anything, is dangerous because everyone's expectations are completely exceeded, and then suddenly that's the new expectation, and you can't live up to it. Lewis Hamilton has had some sustained success, and I know you have had interaction with him, the incredible F1 driver. What makes Lewis Hamilton Lewis Hamilton and allows him to do the thing that I believe is the most difficult in all of sports? replicate success so lewis i worked with andy murray's brother jamie murray and so spend a bit of time with andy as well in the evenings and in, in at tournaments and stuff what was really apparent with those two is they're probably their own biggest critics they are focused they are exceedingly hard working good enough is not good enough they are relentless in their pursuit of the details. You know, they will do what they can do. They will run through walls. And interestingly, I worked with McLaren when Lewis, it was Lewis's first championship. So it was his second year in Formula One. And 
he went through a lot of growth. I'm still in touch with some of the people in the paddock. I mean, he was early 20s, I think, at the time. You look at me in my early 20s, I would not have handled what he handled anywhere near as well. But at that time, his father, his stepmom, his brother came everywhere with him. And that kept him really grounded. And I look at hockey and I look at a lot of young players and they don't have that support network, that connection to where they came from. And I think it was Avery talking about not forgetting where you, you come from. And, and I think that's really critical. And Lewis, I think himself would admit to have gone on a journey of growth like we all have. And maybe he's done some things that now he would behave very differently, you know, in those situations. But I think at that time, his family were so valuable to him in keeping him steady and keeping his feet on the ground. Likewise with Andy, his mum, Judy, so much time and respect for that woman, what she's done for women's sport as a whole. But as a parent, she put on so many hats and she fought for, you know, tennis in the UK. And just like she's fought for women's sport as well. She's a great advocate and you need that support. So yes, that's something else that was a commonality between them. Parents that were exceedingly supportive weren't afraid of pulling their sons, you know, into line when they needed it and were fiercely behind them, but at the same time didn't interfere and didn't push them. They didn't need to, right? You know, with that mentality. But yeah, incredible people. And no surprise that both have seen the success that they've seen throughout their careers fully deserved. Understandably, we've talked a lot of sport to this point, but I do believe one of the crossover aspects of this is that whether you're owning a sports organization, managing a sports organization, or any business for that matter, you know what everyone says when they come in. Well, we need a good culture. Not everybody seems to understand what that is, or more companies and more sports organizations would get that right. So what is the most common thing that you believe companies or sports organizations get wrong when they try to establish what they would call a good culture? We could do a podcast on this alone. This is one of my areas, and I consult for organizations on this. I love it. Firstly, they're not intentional about it. You have to be intentional, and you have to be relentless in it. You know, when I've failed in the past in instilling cultures, it's because I knew what I wanted to instill in my head, but I didn't communicate it. I didn't relate it back to everything we were doing, why that was important for the culture. And the team I worked in the NHL with was very interesting because... They hired a coach that started at the same time I did that came from an organization renowned for having a strong culture. He'd inherited that. And so to build a culture from a place where, goodness, I walked into a very toxic culture in that place, he struggled because he'd inherited it and he wasn't necessarily the steward of that culture in the organization he came from. And I think you look at Manchester United was a great example. The culture that Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill, the CEO at the time, built was incredible. But when they both left at the same time with an aging group of players that were the cultural architects of that dynasty, suddenly there was no steward of that culture and it disintegrated. And, you know, they're just now starting to, I hope, get that back on track. So I would say that's one thing. The other thing that I would say is you see values and behaviors plastered all over walls. Oftentimes that comes from the top down. And so, you know, the ivory towers, the people up there have decided that these are going to be our values. This is what we're, we're about. 
And the research would indicate that actually it doesn't matter what those values are, but they have to be from within. They have to be shared. Now, you can't, in a company of 100, 200, 300 people, you can't have everyone contributing. But the organizations I've seen have done this the best is they've identified people in different departments that are prime examples of who they would like to be reflective of that organization. And they get them involved in that process. It has to be from within. Otherwise, people don't relate to it. You know, it becomes very much, well, that was their values. They're not mine. That's their agreed behaviors. They're not mine. And for me, the lowest standard of behavior you permit in an organization is your culture. And so you have to set the bar high. I always say I've got a very high tolerance for failure when it comes to technical, tactical, or skill failings, because that's either my fault that I didn't communicate the demands well enough, or I didn't train you well enough, or I didn't pick the right person for the job that was appropriate for that. So let's debrief, let's look at why the failure occurred. And let's put measures in place that will help you succeed next time. I can do that all day. I've got very low tolerance for failures when it's counter to the values and the behaviors that are in the organization. And problem with that is, and I've seen that in the last team I worked with, they weren't defined. So everyone was doing exactly what they wanted because they didn't have any guidance. It's human nature. You've got to follow a purpose. You've got to follow a vision. And if that company or that club doesn't lay that out, people become very self-serving and they follow their own vision. And so they're driven and motivated more by money and their success rather than for the greater good. And so I think you see that quite a lot. Now, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows how a guy who spent most of his career talking about sports is hosting this podcast. But this is the part where we try to understand how Little Kitchen Academy came into your orbit. How did that happen? Yeah, interesting one. I met Brian first off through... Another one of your guests, Felix, because I'd become involved in Chop Value very early on. I think I invested pretty early in the company, I think at number two, and have been helping them with, again, business development in the sports world. I love what they do. I love what they stand for. I love their purpose. And when Brian became involved in that company on the board of directors, I got to meet him and just fascinated. I love talking to interesting people and people with you know, great story. And my goodness, Brian's got that in abundance. And then when I heard about Little Kitchen Academy, goodness, that resonated so much. I'm a big brother in, in Vancouver with the Big Brothers Big Sister program. My relatives have mentored young boys and girls for a long time. It's something that is so important in community and in, in the culture of our society. And so seeing something like this I think a lot of the education system is pretty flawed, to be perfectly honest. I think this provides a really necessary facility for young people to, yes, learn how to cook, but explore in a safe place, be adventurous, be curious, ask questions, find out for themselves without helicopter parenting, with some of the guardrails taken off, but in a controlled way. And I think that is so, so important. I was extremely lucky at school. I had two years where we did what was called home economics. So every week, you know, we had an, a morning or an afternoon, I think it was two and a half hours of cooking. And I remember the joy that gave me. I loved the creativity, you know, in the kitchen. And my mother was exceedingly supportive of experimenting at home. I was really lucky in the fact that I went to school in the city, but we lived outside of it and we grew strawberries 
blackberries, black currants, raspberries, carrots, potatoes, leeks, you name it, we grew it. We had chickens in the garden. I collected the eggs every morning. And so I was extremely fortunate. I didn't realize at the time how fortunate. Looking back, my goodness, what a lucky chap I was. And to be able to experiment in kitchen with a mother who was exceedingly patient I could make a mess it was fine you know what's the worst that can happen she always used to laugh because she put a recipe in front of me and I kind of used the backbones of it and then I'd just play and I'd experiment and I would cook the same thing time and time again but it was never exactly the same thing and I just see what Little Kitchen Academy is doing and it's providing that fortunate experience that I had at home and the outcome of that was when I went to university, I was streets ahead of my friends. They couldn't look after themselves, you know? And so what I was cooking and feeding myself and had the understanding of what was important to put in my body was not the beans on toast that everyone else was eating. Let's put it that way. And I've kept that curiosity around food and that interest in it. So there's the educational component, but Little Kitchen Academy is not unique as being a children's cooking school because there are a lot of places that children can get educated in the process of making something. You mentioned earlier alignment of values and you strike me as someone who works with companies where the values align. What values of what Little Kitchen Academy is trying to do align with your values? I love the purpose of changing lives from scratch. For me as a, you know, a youth mentor, that's what it's all about. You know, it's taking away the ceilings of everyone else around a kid that automatically we feel we're defined by, but really aren't. And saying your parents' ceilings, your siblings' ceilings, my ceilings, they're not yours. You have got the ultimate control over where you go with your life and what you can do with it. And I love that about Little Kids in the Academy. I love the passion that Felicity and Brian have. It's more than a business, you know? And I was recently down with them in LA. You can tell Brian's had great experience in this. Fiercely protecting the brand values, fiercely protecting the brand image, fiercely protecting what the brand stands for and will stand for in 10 years time, not taking decisions that would give some quick wins, but could compromise the brand in the long run. And I work with a number of different companies, growth stage companies, and I wish more of them would take the example of that. You know, I look at some of them and yes, I know the bottom line is important. Yes, I know the here and now is important and you've got to satisfy a board of directors. But if you make this decision now, your clear purpose and your clear vision are compromised. And in 10 years time, I want to know who you're going to be and what you stand for. And the decisions you're making right now make it very difficult for me to understand which path you're going down. Do you want to be X or do you want to be Y? And either's fine. And you can create a successful business out of both. But if you opt for both, people aren't going to know what you stand for. And as a result, that's going to hurt your brand identity down the line. And there is no doubt with LKA what they stand for, what that brand is about, and the fact that there is no compromise. And that for me is admirable but also why they will be successful and why it will impact a heck of a lot of kids over a long period of time. You referenced that trip to Los Angeles and you saw Brian down there. And one of the things I was told about you is that you walk everywhere, most places, if you're able to. 
And he told me to ask you about your walk through East Los Angeles <laughs> on the way to meet him for a bite to eat. So you have to share that story now. So I've been extremely fortunate in my life and my work. I mean, I worked in Formula One. I worked in tennis. I worked in track and field. I've had the good fortune that that's put me in over 80 odd countries, right? One of my favorite ways of exploring cities is go for a run or go for a walk. Um, it's where I do my best thinking. It just gives you exposure to places where the tourists don't go. So I was staying in Santa Monica and Brian sort of arranged to meet for a drink. And I looked on the map and I was like, oh, there's a, the train goes from Santa Monica to about a mile and a half from where we're meeting. So easy walk, no problem. So I got on the train and let's just say the train or the rail system, <clears throat> the metro in, in LA is not quite like the SkyTrain. There are a lot of very unfortunate people where it's obviously a bit of a refuge. So that was interesting anyway. So I got out literally from end to end, first stop to last stop of the train, got out and looked on my phone for the map and just took the quickest route. Very quickly, I realized I was in Skid Row um, and I was walking on the street because, I mean, LA has the same distressing problem that we've got here with homelessness and the drug culture. The police had blocked the street off, you know, it was that dangerous. About 600 meters in, I thought, yeah, probably ought to order an Uber here. No Uber was picking me up at all. And I just carried on walking. I had like a sports coat on. I had my laptop. And I was just like, you know, I think I'm walking quickly enough. But by the time they realize that I'm a soft target for mugging, I'll be past them. It'll be absolutely fine. And so I got there without a problem. But it wasn't quite the scenic view that I was expecting. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting way to explore. And you and I are very much the same. When I get to a new city, I'm the same way. I like to go for a run. I like to go for a walk and explore the city by foot. I do want to get back to your kitchen, though, because it is the question that is asked on every single one of these episodes. And you know that because you've heard a number of them. What is the one ingredient, Oliver, that is always in your kitchen and why? So the hard one is black pepper. It's a great food. Coarse ground black pepper. Don't like fine ground. Great antioxidant, helps turmeric get absorbed by the body. So always have black pepper on pretty much everything. Strawberries to savory dishes. And in terms of the quality, curiosity. It's got to be curiosity. I'm obsessed with learning. I'm relentless in my pursuit of growth and to become sort of the best person I can possibly be. And I just think that curiosity has allowed me to become an extremely creative person. Yeah. I mean, there are other qualities, the passion, but other people have named those. For me, that curiosity is what drives me day to day. Well, and I know that curiosity for you extends far beyond the kitchen. Some of that we've explored already in our conversation, but you and I, as the world is small, met within the last month, just by chance. We were at an event for the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute, which has a goal of making Canada the healthiest nation on the planet by 2030. It's an admirable goal. It's a lofty one. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on health and fitness as well. This is a really difficult one to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. How would you prefer to see the term health defined in our society? That is a big, big question. And not one I probably have a definitive answer for, to be perfectly honest. Look, I think... And this is my opinion, and other people have very different opinions on this, and neither's right or wrong. I think where Western culture struggles a little bit 
is the impact of pharmaceutical companies on what health is. And I'm I'm not a political guy. I'm not here to stand on a soapbox and beat my drum about this party, that party, this conspiracy theory, that conspiracy theory. But as soon as money becomes involved in a capitalist society, it's very difficult to make objective decisions, the best decisions sometimes. And I think when we look at health, the issues we have are the best medicine out there is exercise. And it's not pushed enough. We don't have enough access to it. And I get it. Look, governments have to manage the healthcare for millions and millions of people. They have to manage the healthcare for people that love to get outside and play sport and people that prefer to sit on the couch and watch TV. They have to manage the health for people that are very educated and people that haven't had that ability to access education in the same way. And so you have to cater for the lowest common denominator that's going to give the biggest bang for the buck that's going to impact the most people. And in a lot of cases, medication drugs creates an economy it's a passive intervention that you're not relying on people's compliance to a certain extent obviously they have to take the medication but you're not asking them to go out and run five miles for example and so can they influence the most people that way with the lowest common denominator of education and understanding from the people administering interventions and the people taking it then maybe i disagree but i can see where they've, they've gotten to with that for me that money would be better spent increasing access to activities and sport for everybody and for creating different opportunities for people that don't really enjoy competitive sport. Sport's not always about competition. It should always be about fun for 99% of people doing it. And so we've got to create better environments for that. I think the same thing comes to nutrition. I think a lot of health issues are created because there are too many processed foods out there on the market. And again, I get the lived experience of being a parent and trying to pin down three jobs, but we're not making it easy as a country to support those people. And the education system doesn't have things like Little Kitchen Academy where a lot of people didn't grow up learning how to cook, right? And so the quality of nutrition we get in our bodies is, is not great. And so those two things alone are greatly influencing the health of our nation. On top of that, you then have the mental health continuum. And we're all somewhere on different days on a mental health continuum. Yes, there is mental illness, but we all suffer. We all have ups and downs, some more than others. But nutrition has a part in that. Sport and exercise has a part in that. Um, social isolation has a part in that. Um, you look at the neuroscience behind you know, the impact that socialization and isolation has on the brain it's significant so there are a lot of things that i think we could do better as society that would have a tremendous impact on the health and well-being of the people within it that i don't think we're doing and one of my hobbies i started an event called mindflow performance in 2018 2019 and that was a symposium and a conference around mindfulness and flow in performance environments and from there kind of didn't do anything with that brand that I created. And it was actually quite a strong brand. Didn't do anything with it until about six months ago. And I've actually decided that I'm quite passionate about this thing. And so I, I've started to put up a lot of essays on there. And I know people don't read anymore, so that's a bit of a problem. I had to be doing podcasts and TV shows, uh, sort of video clips on it. But they're written 
that someone from a sort of high school undergraduate student level could understand in the neuroscience, the neuroanatomy, the impact that things like fats and sugars and exercise, the menstrual cycle, stress, social isolation have on the brain. I think that's really important because I think a lot of times mental health issues are exacerbated because we feel helpless and are very passive and we don't understand why or how something's occurring. When actual fact, if you have a good understanding of neuroscience, and it can be at quite a basic level, you're actually more in control than you think you are. And that for me is very important. Well, you've mentioned some factors that all work in congruence with each other, and you can call it a symbiotic relationship, really, when you're talking about nutrition and exercise or movement, if we want to define it that way, social interaction as well, mental health. It's amazing that if one of those cogs is broken, that the wheel can't turn. But I think we all can relate to if we're eating a little bit better, if we are getting a little bit of a daily walk-in, it's amazing how all of those things start to feel better. And we all understand what it feels like to feel good, don't we? Right. I think the problem is there are several issues. I think a lot of research historically has been biased towards being done on male groups. So I don't think we fully understand the female neurophysiology quite as well as we understand male physiology. There are fluctuations in cognitive performance and brain performance that happen throughout the menstrual cycle. I'm not sure we quite understand that yet. My curiosity around that is, does that in some way impact the prevalence of eating disorders, for example, in females over males? Because the neuroscience is different, the neurophysiology is different. We don't really understand that to the extent I think we ought to. I think as well, we're not all starting from the same place, right? So if you get an understanding or some understanding of what impacts your brain health and you've been an active person that's been fortunate enough to be brought up in a home or have access to good nutrition and you, you know, enjoy thinking, learning, mental growth, then you're not starting at the same place as someone who maybe had a significant childhood trauma that didn't necessarily have access to a good diet growing up that is living in a society of fear or, or in a social situation where fear and anxiety are prevalent. And so we could both start eating better, exercising better, being more socially interactive on the same day. One person's brain is not going to adjust at the same rate as the other. And there are genetic differences as well. But I think a big part of it is understanding that we have some control over that. And that gives an understanding that I need to be a little bit patient. The brain is plastic. The brain can always, you know, improve or go the other way as well. It takes a little bit of time, but with the right interventions and some things one brain will respond to better than others, you can make a difference. And I think that's the important takeaway is you have control over that. And that's what I'm trying to do with Mindflow Performance. And that's why some of the growth stage companies I work with are based in the neurotech sector. And I think there are some great ones in Vancouver doing some admirable work. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. You are trying to empower people exactly the same way Little Kitchen Academy is trying to empower future generations as well. Hey, I have a question for you before you go. In your career, you know, in covering so many sports, what was your sort of most memorable event that you covered or the most memorable 
stadium and setting that you covered that in? Because your experience is, you know, phenomenal. It's a difficult question to answer. And I imagine you would have trouble the same way. I find it hard to beat, and it's not far from where I live, but being in what was Canada Hockey Place at the time for Sidney Crosby scoring the game-winning goal in the 2010 Olympics. I was at the event. I was standing beside Gordie Howe when it happened. I embraced him after the goal. It's one of my greatest sporting memories as a fan. So I would say that, even though it's not the biggest stage I've ever been on in terms of my professional career, the fan in me and the reason that I love what I've done forever, it's tough to get away from that connection. I love it. I love it. What a great memory. Well, I have to throw this back to you then. You have to answer yours before we go then. <sighs> Again, difficult. I mean, just we spoke about Lewis earlier on and my role in races, you know, a lot of my work was done outside races, but on the race, I was fortunate. My role was to be on the pit wall with the timing board. So we had two drivers at McLaren. Well, every team has two drivers. I was predominantly responsible for Heike, Kovalainen. But Lewis's first championship came down to the last lap of the last race of the season. You know, the race was in Interlagos in Brazil. It started an hour late because of the rain. We'd had a disrupted night before because the Brazilian fans were going crazy because Felipe Massa was six points behind Lewis, so a local boy driving for Ferrari. The grandstand right in front of us was Ferrari red. Everyone was wearing Ferrari. If Felipe won, Lewis just had to finish sixth or higher and he won the championship. Three laps out, the rain stops. Lewis takes the bold decision to change to medium tyres, but he's in eighth or ninth and it dropped him back a bit. And the last penultimate two laps, he pulled it back. And on the last corner of the last lap, Felipe had won. The grandstand was going absolutely nuts in front of me. The Ferrari garage was behind my right shoulder. And our Paddy, our race engineer, had just gone down there to see when Felipe came in, whether they put any different fuel in or, you know, just trying to work out their strategy. He said, as the garage was up on its feet cheering, he kind of got down on his knees and tried to crawl out. And the last lap, Lewis overtook Timo Glock to get into sixth place. And from absolute mayhem, the grandstand in front of me, you could have heard a pin drop. Behind me in the garage, Paddy jumped up in the air as the rest of the Ferrari garage just went silent. And the hairs on the back of my, I mean, even now, the hairs on the back of my neck just stand on end. And to have that vantage point, just so fortunate. And it was a great night and, you know, the end to a, a really fascinating season where I learned so much. So that's one of, you know, the Olympics there with some of the great UK athletes that I work with. And yeah, that was, I could go on, but that was definitely one. Well, perhaps at a future date, maybe the near future, we will discuss a few more of these sporting memories. That's a great one to go out on. Dr. Oliver Finley, thank you very much for doing this today. Thank you for having me. I love the podcast. I love what you've been doing with this. Um, humbled to be on, so thank you. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 